that's probably the first time you've seen Mandy Moore in about 15 years. And uh, that's a movie called uh, Saved that came out a while ago. But uh, illustrates well, I think, what we're, what we're talking about tonight. And we've been talking about the top questions that people have about Christianity, Jesus, the Bible, faith, all that good stuff. And one of the questions that people have often is if Christianity is so good, if, if the Bible is so good, if God is so good, if faith is so if all that's so good, then why has it produced uh, so much evil or so much injustice or so much hypocrisy or so much of that kind of attitude? Well, why, why has it produced that? If, if God is good, if Christianity is true and right and all of that, then why, why does it often produce so many problems? Why, why do Christians do so much stuff that's wrong? So that's the, that's the question that we look at tonight. And, and if you think about that, this question, why have Christians done so much wrong? That, that might be as you think about that, that might be something that you kind of think through different headlines. So there's, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't take long to look in the news and see scandals of, of um, pastors stealing money or um, running away with their secretary or sex abuse scandals within the Catholic Church. Or um, you can think of things back in history. You can think of things like the Crusades. And this was actually recently in the news with President Obama. He made a comment at the National Prayer Breakfast and talked about how we shouldn't necessarily be so quick to judge ISIS when in the name of Christianity a lot of evil things have been done. And there's a lot of controversy stirred up with him making those comments. Or you can think of even just individual people in your life that have maybe been rude, maybe have been jerks, or maybe it's more on the, the hypocritical end of things, that they have professed to believe one thing and then their life looks way different. They've said, this is true and this is what I believe, and then life has looked another way. So this question, why have Christians done so much wrong, can kind of be looked at from, from different angles. It can be thought through and can be a problem that people have. And it's not so much this question is not so much um, an intellectual objection, it's more of an emotional uh, rejection, right? So it's not so much, well, it must be false because logically if I analyze this, which some of the other types of things we've looked at are, this is more something that is just emotionally, there's a, a sense of disgust that, that repels. So this is what we're talking about tonight, and I think it's, it's a really important question. It's a question that... Um, I think all too often Christians just deny or excuse or try to run around and say, oh, no, you know, but I do think this is an important question. It's an important reason that has kept people from the church, that has kept people from Christian relationships, because there's a lot of stuff done in the name of Jesus that, that has been done wrongly. And I think that's the first place we just have to start is to admit that. We just have to admit, man, there's, there's Christians that have mistreated people, and there's the church broadly that has done things that are, that are wrong, that are harmful, that are hurtful. I think that's, we just have to start there and admit that. I, I've grown up in the church my, my whole life, and I've seen, I mean, this is, uh, you know, an objection or a question that's very real to my own heart. I mean, I've seen, I've seen pastors involved in adultery up close and personal. I've, I mean, in the sense that I was in the church, I haven't, Okay, I've seen, I've, I've heard about those things, okay? I've, um, I've, seen, uh, I've seen pastors that have stolen money. I've seen, um, I've seen people having secret meetings to, to be able to try to vie for power, to be able to vote this person out so they have these secret meetings over here. I've seen churches that 
uh, had all sorts of favoritism. I've seen power-hungry people. I mean, I've seen all sorts of stuff within my time in the church. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen it all. And so it's, it's a very real heart-level uh, repulsion that people have to the church, to Christians. And if, if, people are, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, this can be one of those things that really keeps you from even investigating Jesus at all. It can be one of those things that keeps you from any interest in the church at all. Because maybe it's an intellectual, how could it be true? How, how could something that is divine produce such bad people? How could something that is so supposedly good produce so much problems? It, it could be that, or it could just be, I don't want to identify myself with that. I mean, do I really want to say I'm a Christian when the way that often Christians are thought about is what we saw in that video? The way that Christians are thought about is on the headlines. I don't, I don't want to even identify myself with that. And for Christians, it can be a problem because it can just be really embarrassing. Like, man, do I want to tell someone I'm a Christian when that's what they're going to... I mean, when I introduce myself as a pastor, most people think that means either I'm Ned Flanders or I'm, you know, Westboro Baptist. Or, you know, not, it's one of those things. Or, you know, Ned Flanders as a part of the Westboro Baptist. It may be that. That's usually what people think. So it can often be, man, do I want to be a Christian? Do I want to be a part of a church when that is the kind of thing that people associate it with? So that's a real question that's, again, like I said, it's, a, it's an emotional, it's more of an emotional issue than it is just I'm logically analyzing something and this must be false, but that doesn't mean it's any less important. It's something that still repels people because of the emotional embarrassment or baggage that it contains. And our experience always affects our beliefs. Our experience always affects our beliefs, right? I mean, if, you, if you've known people that are really uh, generous, really kind, really charitable Christians, and you're not a Christian, then you may go, okay, I know these people, and so something about them makes me think maybe there's some plausibility to their belief. But without even examining the belief yet. Similarly, you may know a Christian that's a jerk, that's a rude person, that's a hypocrite, and go, I don't even care if their beliefs are true. I'm not even, I'm not even going to examine them. That our experience always affects our belief. Belief becomes more plausible if the experience of the people that you know that believe something is a good experience. I mean, you may have found this if there's particular, uh, depending on just who you are, growing up, you may have found that you had some ideas about people of a different race, then you met someone of a certain race and said, well, actually, I like this person, or of a different kind of socioeconomic status, or of a different group, or a different, I mean, oh, artists. And then you meet an artist, and you're like, oh, I like those people, actually, so now my whole paradigm has to change. Or maybe it's, ah, uh, athletes, they're just dumb jocks, and then you meet one, and you go, oh, I actually like this guy. and I mean, your paradigms shift. Your belief structure can change based on your experience. So it's really important. So I keep saying it's not necessarily a logical objection. It's an emotional rejection. But it doesn't make it any less important. Because our experience really does shape our, our beliefs. So this is what we're talking about tonight. Why have Christians done so much wrong? And, and we'll start kind of at the individual level. Uh, with individual Christians, hypocrisy and that kind of thing, and then, and then ask kind of the broader question in society. So, so let's start with this. What about Christians that are hypocrites and jerks? 
and you can phrase that however you want to phrase it, but, I mean, if, there's, if, if individual people have lived hypocritically, have said they believe this, and then you look at their life, and it doesn't match up at all, or they've just been rude, they've just been jerks, they've just been mean, they've been the kind of people you don't actually want to be around, I mean, how could Christianity be true? And especially if you know people that are not Christians, that you go, I really like this person. And this person's not a Christian. They don't claim any sort of belief in God. They don't, they don't go to church. And they're awesome. I love hanging out with them. They're gracious. They're generous. They're kind. They're joyful. They enjoy their life. They have friends. They're, I mean, I like this person. This person's a Christian, and I don't even want to look at them. And this person's not a Christian, and they're a moral person. And they're, I mean, that can be an experience that a lot of people have, right? So let's, let's start with that, because here, here's what the Bible says. James, he writes in his letter to the church that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So here's what this means, and this is really important. If you're a Christian, this is a really important concept. What this means is that you don't have to be a Christian to be good. You don't have to be a Christian to be a skilled person in whatever kind of field you're in. If, if uh, you know, just looking out in the room, if you're a doctor, man, you don't have to be a Christian to be a good doctor. If you're into coffee, you don't have to be a Christian to be good at coffee. If you're a therapist, you don't have to be a Christian to be a good therapist. I mean, you can be somebody that's not a Christian and be really good and skilled at what you do. And you can actually live a good life and you can have good friends. And, and why is that? But here's what James says. Says every good and every perfect gift is from God. That's called God's common grace. It means God gives His grace to God gives good gifts to everybody. Gifts of conscience, gifts of abilities, gifts of skills. And sometimes I know, and I know many people have had this experience, but growing up in the church, if you've grown up in the church or have some sort of church background, it can feel like, okay, outside of these walls. These big, bad, scary people that do all sorts of horrible things. And their lives are miserable, and they treat people miserably. And then you meet them, and that's not true. And it's like, wait a minute. But this is why. Because God has given his common grace to everybody. That everybody can have good skills, can have morality, can be good people. The Bible says, Jesus says, that, that God causes the sun to shine on both the evil and the righteous, that God causes the rain to fall on both the evil and the righteous, that good things and bad things happen to the evil and the righteous, that God is indiscriminate in the way that he gives good gifts to people. So that's the first thing, that sometimes if you think, man, how can Christians be so bad if some non-Christian people are so good? Well, it's because you don't have to be a Christian for God to still give you good gifts of conscience, morality, of skill, of ability. But, second thing is this. We talked about this last week. How come Christians can be such hypocrites and such jerks? Here's what we talked about last week. That the church is a place for the people that are not good. It's a place for the people, it's the only organization in the world that says, this is for everybody that's not good. This is for everybody that says, I need help. This is for everybody that says, I'm not a good person. Okay, so then we open the doors and say, everybody that's not a good person, come on in here. 
So then you look at Christians and go, man, why are they such hypocrites? Why are they such? Well, because the doors are open. The doors are welcome to everybody that's not a good person. Which means then that people start off messed up. And people start off messed up. That it's not, hey, get your life clean and then come to God. But rather, God says, everybody come to me. Everybody come to me. And then I begin to change your life. Then I begin to clean up your life. Then things begin to shift. Then things begin to change. And that's a process. And that takes time. But that's, that's what's different about Christianity. It's not just say, all the good people are welcome. It's all the bad people are welcome. And then God begins to change us. Then God begins to work in our hearts. But if you see, it, if, you, if you come into a church and you meet some people and it goes, and you go, man, what, these don't seem like holy people. These don't seem like the kind of people that are the best people on the planet. Well, yeah, because they're messed up. Because we're the people that have said, man, we need someone to save us. We need a savior. This is why if you read through the Bible, if you read through the letters to the churches, they're filled with, you people are all messed up and you need help. You need Jesus to work in your life. That's, I mean, you can, sometimes people can have a view of the Bible that it's just telling good people how to be better people. That's not, I mean, if, if you read the New Testament, which is mainly letters to churches, what it says is these churches are messed up and they need Jesus. Let me just give you a sampling of some of these things. This is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. He says, I, this is the very beginning of his letter. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So this is how he's starting off his letter, saying, hey, you know what I've heard about you? You know what, you know what Chloe told me? And everyone's like, freaking Chloe, you know what I mean? <laughs> Chloe's the tattletale, right? But it, Chloe's people told me that everybody's quarreling. Chloe's people told me that everybody's trying to fight. They want this thing. They want this thing. They want this. There's divisions that it's split. That's what Chloe told me. This is a church, right? I mean, if you're in that environment, and some of you have experienced this in church, if you're in that environment, you go, what, what's, these don't seem like Christian people. No, they actually seem like very Christian people. They seem like Corinthians. Here's another Paul, Paul uh, excuse me, <laughs> Papa, Papa, Papa. Paul writes to the church in Galatia and says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So these people have false beliefs. So they became Christians and they believe the gospel and then... Paul's like, I'm, what is going on so quickly? You said, oh, I love Jesus. I believe the gospel. This is great. My life is changing. And then the next day, what is going on? And then later in his letter, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Are you so foolish? So if you look around and think, man, people are foolish. If you feel like, I, I don't, how could you be so stupid? Paul agrees. That, again, this, these are churches, these are Christians that he's writing to. So when people say, man, how could Christians be such hypocrites? How could they be, how could they live such lives that, because you're taking all these messed up people and putting them into one community. That's what happens. Here, here's another one. This is the last one. This is from 3 John. It's, 
His name is just John, but he, this is his third letter he writes. He says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. So John says, hey, I'm trying to write things to the church. I'm trying to teach the church. I'm trying to instruct the church. But this one guy keeps saying, nope, nope, nope. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own way. Nope, don't listen to John. Nope, don't. And he says, man, he's talking wicked nonsense. He's selfish. He likes to put himself first. He likes to believe his own things and do his own way. And he's selfish. So, I mean, that's church, right? Sometimes people talk about, ah, man, why can't we go back to the early church where everything was great and everybody, there's one verse in Acts that says everybody shared everything and had everything in common and life was awesome. Yeah, and that was one verse, right? And then the rest of it is all these letters saying, yeah, and then what do you think happens when everybody shares things and has everything in common? They probably start to say, hey, I want that. I mean, what happens when little kids share things? They start to say, Hey, you know, I, it's my turn to have that. It's my turn. I mean, it's, it creates problems. It creates tension. It creates conflict. It creates division. It creates selfishness. You take a bunch of sinful people and put them in one community. You take a bunch of people that are united by the fact that they say, we, we are sinners and need a savior. It, it's a mess. I mean, that's what most of the letters in the church were written for. It didn't say everything is going great, and so I'm going to write you a letter saying... Everything is going great. John, right? I mean, that, the reason we have most of the Bible in the New Testament is because there was churches that had problems that then the pastors and the apostles wrote letters to say, hey, Chloe told me what was going on. So we can thank Chloe for a lot of the letters in the New Testament and her people. So here's my point. If we say, what about Christians that are hypocrites and jerks and have all these problems? The point of the Bible is this, not... Not that people will not have problems. We should expect that. And I don't want to minimize, if you've, if you've been a part of a church in the past, or even in our church, if you've experienced issues, if you've experienced pain, if people have mistreated you, the point is not to excuse that. But it's just to say, the Bible explains that that would be a reality. It's not to excuse it and say, so see, it's okay, who cares? No, it's a serious issue. But the Bible explains that when you take all these people that are sinful in their hearts and put them together, that we should expect it. It doesn't excuse it, but we should expect that there will be problems, that we will meet Christians that are sinful. Because that's what unites us around a Savior. And the next thing is this. What about Christians that are hypocrites and jerks? Well, here's here's another way to look at that. And this is something that the Bible is filled with. Almost every, almost every book of the Bible talks about this in the, in the New Testament. Almost every book. That, that there are people that you can look at their life and they say, I believe this and they live like this. And you go, they're a hypocrite. Why would I ever want to be a part of a group of people that are hypocrites? Or you look at their life and they're just mean-spirited and they're just rude. And, they're just, and you go, I don't, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. And here's what the Bible says. That not everybody that says, I'm a Christian, is a Christian. Not everybody that says, I am a Christian, is a Christian. That's something almost in every book that almost every author discusses in the New Testament. This is not something that people like. 
It's not, I mean, it's not something that people that are not Christians like because it kind of sounds like a get-out-of-jail-free card that you say, well, yeah, sure, they say they're a Christian, but they're not on our team. It's not something that Christians like because it can seem like, ah, I've got to be held accountable for my life. That there's actually an examination of our lives that actually prove if what we say in our hearts is actually true. So it's not something that people like, and yet the Bible is filled with it, I think partially because of this. Because you look around and go, man, the, the doors are wide open and everybody's welcome. And yet not everybody that actually is a part of a church has actually become a part of God's family. And that's okay. Like everybody is welcome. Everybody, the doors are open to any single person. And yet that doesn't mean that every single person has actually come to know Jesus. Here, here's how John says it. And I want you to, I want you to hear this. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, meaning not the government's laws, but breaking God's law. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, that's Jesus, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He says, some people will tell you this is not true. Let no one deceive you. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. This is the evidence of who actually belongs to the family of God. Now, I know that this is offensive to some people. Some people read that and really don't like that. Don't like the claims that John here says. But I know that for some people, this is actually really encouraging. Um, because here's what it means. It might mean, man, you have an interest in Jesus. You have certain beliefs about Jesus. So you, you may even believe, yeah, he's the son of God, and yeah, he's God. You, you, you may have some certain beliefs about him. You may have a curiosity about him. You may have been raised with knowledge about who he is. You may have been raised in the church. And he's writing this. Again, remember, he's writing this to people in a church. He's speaking this to people in a church. So you may have been raised like that. You may have some beliefs about that. You may have some understanding or interest. But here's, here's why I think this why I know this from my conversations with folks is encouraging to some people. Because here's what it means. It means that, and I've talked to many people like this who have lived their lives and gone, man, I was a, I've been a Christian almost all my life. And then I feel like something happened where I really began to see him. I really began to know him. I really actually began to abide in him, which is to have life in him to have him at my center. That happened, and then stuff started to change in my life. Stuff actually clicked. I actually felt like I was able to overcome sinning in my life. Not that you become perfect all of a sudden, but that it, it's no longer just the practice. It's no longer just the habit. It's no longer just the pattern that I actually, my desires have changed. I want to change. I want to grow. I want to obey God. I want to walk with God. I, I don't want that to be my practice 
that I see him as my father and me as, and as his child, that something clicked in my heart, something changed in my heart. See, that, that's really encouraging for some people because if you live your whole life thinking I'm a Christian and yet you're not, it can feel really powerless. It can feel really disconnected. It can feel like God is really distant and go, this is what it is. But then if something happens and something clicks and something changes and you really come to see him, to know him, to become his child, and then you go, actually, now my life is starting to change. What happened at this point that now my life is changing? So it's really encouraging. And I think it's also encouraging maybe if you're even not a Christian, because what it means is that you may have been mistreated by people. You may have been harmed by people. You may have been hurt by people, abused by people that said they were Christians and they weren't. So that means emotionally, you don't have to have the repulsion against those that claim to be Christians when really they're not. When really they're people that have just made in their life a practice of sinning but claim some knowledge of God. So if you've been unloved and mistreated and been around people that live their lives completely inconsistent with what they say they believe and then been rubbed the wrong way by that, I think for some people, as I've talked to them, that go, wait a minute, maybe those people, maybe they've actually never been children of God. Maybe they were never actually children of God. And, and that's what Christianity is. See, this is what is different, again, about Christianity, is the way that John talks about it and the way that Jesus talks about it is that it's a birth. It's a birth. It's someone that's been born of God. So it's not just... See, look, anybody in this room that says, I'm a Republican, if you've signed the card, you're a Republican. I mean, that's all it takes. Anyone that says, I'm a Democrat, if you've signed the card, you're a Democrat. I mean, that's all, that's all it takes. If you say, I'm a member of this 24-hour fitness, or I'm a member of this CrossFit gym, or I'm, I mean, those are things that you just kind of opt into, and if you say you're a part of them, you're a part of them. But Christianity is not something like that. What John says, what Jesus says, is there's an actual spirit spiritual change that takes place in someone's heart. It's not just an opting in to a teaching. There's an actual spiritual change, a spiritual birth that takes place, that we go from dead to alive. And if that really happens, that it's not just an intellectual thing, it's not just a, it's not just a cultural thing, that if that happens, your life is different. Your life changes. Your life, your desires change. You want to follow Jesus. You want to spend your life living with Jesus. So, why are Christians hypocrites and jerks? Well, non-Christians can be really great people because of God's common goodness, his common grace. Christians can be really messed up people because we're the people that say, we are sinners united around someone that is good, we're not good. And sometimes the people that say they're Christians are not Christians. But that's, that's kind of at the individual level. What about, what, about, what about not just individual Christians, but what about the church? What about, I mean, what about the church? Because the church, the church has been a part of a lot of injustice. The church has been a part of a lot of things that none of us would want to be associated with. There's the individual level of specific Christians, but then there's society at large that the church has been a part of. Things like the Crusades where Christians 
in armies went and killed many, many Muslims and Jews in the name of Jesus. One, one of the popes who kind of kicked off a lot of the crusades said, bathe in the blood of the infidels. Sounds very ISIS to me, but that was made by a pope. Bathe in the blood of the infidels. Jesus died for you. Be ready to die for him. The crusades or things like uh, the Inquisition, where people that didn't have the right beliefs were burned at the stake. Or witches, you've heard of the Salem witch trials, or things like these people are witches. Burn them, kill them in the name of Jesus, in the name of God. Slavery. Christians often supported slavery in our country. The KKK says they're a Christian organization. That's why they burned crosses on people's yards. The church often, during the civil rights era, many of the churches supported Segregation. I mean, many, many slave owners, if you saw 12 Years a Slave, I don't know if you saw that movie, they would give sermons to their slaves and justify the slavery by the Bible. I mean, these are the kinds of things that people go, how could the church be God's people when all of this injustice that they've been a part of? How, I mean, how, how could this be God's institution if this is what the church has done? If this is what religion has done, and some people say, man, this is what all religions do. And that's, that's true. I mean, you don't have to just look at Christianity. I mean, obviously, within Islam, there's, there's people that in the name of their God, they do horrible things. There's Hindu nationalists that in the name of their gods do many horrible things. I mean, this is why Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great, subtitled Religion Poisons Everything. This is just a quote from him that says, Religion poisons everything. As well as a menace to civilization, it has become a threat to human survival. I mean, this is, this is often, not just Christianity, but religion in general. Look at all the injustice that is done in the name of religion. Look at all the harm that is done in the name of religion, whether Christianity or just religion at large. So is this, is this true? Do we just throw out Christianity because of what it's done? Because of the horrors that it's been a part of? And, and here's what I would say. It's not just religion or Christianity that's been a part of that. There's been several things throughout history, and even recently in the last, um, in the last few centuries, that have been intentionally non-religious movements. So communism in China or in Russia that said, we are non-religious, we are atheistic movements. And in the name of those things, killed thousands upon thousands of people. Thousands upon thousands. Or the French Revolution. This is a little picture of a guillotine in the guy's head, um, which is interesting. But um, in the French Revolution, that was intentionally a secular movement, intentionally of movement that was non-religious, saying, in the name of liberty, in the name of equality, in the name of fraternity, in the name of freedom, we do these things. So, so here's where that leaves us. That doesn't say, well, see what atheists do? They cut off people's heads. Or see what Christians do? They, they kill people and bathe in their blood. That, that's not what it is to say. It's just to say this. Something will always draw us to seek power over other people for our own selfish gain. It might be religion. You can use religion for that. You can use Christianity for that. Or you can use the state 
You can use race. You can use the values of freedom and fraternity and liberty. You can use those. I mean, something will always take this ultimate position where we say, in the name of this, I will seek power over other people and I will seek my desires and use this as an ends toward it. So here's, here's the warning then for us Christians. Here's, here's the warning for us. We need to understand that there is something so deeply twisted in all of our hearts that will seek our own ends, that will seek our own desires and use God to justify that. If you're not a Christian, you'll use something else to justify it. But as people that are Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, here's, here's what you need to know. We will. There's a propensity in our heart to say, here's what I want, and I'll use God to justify it. So it may be something like this. I mean, if you think about the Crusades, it's, man, I want power. I want expansion. I want our countries to be able to, to flourish. I want more money. And you know what? God says he wants everybody to be saved. He wants everybody to be a Christian. Okay, so let's use that. Let's use that to pursue our desire for power. Or it can, it can be something like this. This happens very often in our culture. You know what I want? I want to do whatever I want. I want to just live my life. And God is a God of love. God's a God of love. God is a God of love and kindness and compassion. So I can live however I want. See, what happens is, if we're not careful, we use God, we use religion to justify whatever it is that we want. And then what happens is, instead of the Bible, instead of God's teaching, instead of um, God himself being a corrective to the selfishness in our hearts that pursues its own desires, instead of God being a corrective to that, we actually use God to justify that. So you want power, you want freedom, you want whatever it is that you want, and then you just put God language on it, and it makes it even more solid that you're going in that direction. Here's how that often happens within Christian circles. Oh, I prayed about it. Now, obviously, as a pastor, I'm not recommending you don't pray about things, but it's really easy to use God language to justify what we really want. I prayed about it. I feel called to this. God would want me to be happy. And all of that language can just be used to justify our own selfishness. See that, I mean, on a grand scale, that ends in the Crusades and in slavery and those things. But just think about your life. Just think about our lives. Where have you kind of added God language to just do what you want to do? Where have you just kind of put God lingo on something to pursue your own selfishness? Maybe nowhere, but it's something to really think about because I think that impulse is in all of our hearts. That we have this impulse in our hearts that pursues our own selfishness. And if you're a Christian, you add God stuff onto it so that it justifies it, it protects it from any influence from the outside because now it's been sanctified by God. Does that make sense? It's a really dangerous thing that our hearts can get caught up in I mean, one of the ways to think about it is this. When's the last time that God, because, because you read the Bible, because you were praying, that God corrected your path from something that you wanted to do? 
When's the last time that God corrected you and you are doing something different? Not just doing something that you want to do and would do and there's God justification now behind it. When's the last time that something really shifted, really changed because of God? The way you know you're living your life and just adding God language and lingo to it is if you are just actually living the exact course that you want to live. You have the same emotions, the same feelings, the same plans, the same actions, the same goals, the same habits. And it's just, man, God's blessing it and God loves it and God, this is great. The way you know that that's different, one of the ways, I don't know if I would say the way, one of the big ways that you know is that God is correcting your path all the time. Is that, is that are you following that? This is, this is a really important thing because there is a selfish impulse in our heart that will follow our own desires to the very end. It will follow them to the end, and if you're a Christian, you'll just add Christian language to it. If you're not a Christian, you'll just add other language to it. So what's the solution to all of this? I mean, the question is, how come Christians have done so much wrong, whether at an individual level of hypocrisy and inconsistency or rudeness, and at a broad level of injustices that the church has been a part of and evils that the church has been a part of? What, what's the solution to that? What's the solution? And here's what the solution is. In both cases, at the individual level and at the church level, the solution is not, well, we've got to calm down. Let's be less religious we got to moderate this a little bit. The problem is we're too fanatical. We're too, we're too extreme. That's, I mean, you know, the video we watched, it could seem like, what does that girl need? I am filled with the love of Jesus. I mean, what, what does she need? She needs to calm down. She needs to tone her religion down. She's too much of a zealot. She's too much of a fanatic. That's the problem. What's the problem with the crusaders? Man, they were too religious, too fanatical. They need to calm down. But what the Bible actually says is we need to be more religious. We need a deeper faith. It's not that we need to tone it down and moderate it. We need a deeper faith. Here's how Martin Luther King Jr. said it when he was writing from jail, writing to churches that were not participating in the civil rights movement. Here's what he said. He said, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. So people are calling him an extremist. And he says, I gained satisfaction from that. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Was not Amos, this is one of the Bible's prophets, an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? If you've never read the letters to Birmingham, I strongly encourage it. You can get it for free online. His point was this, he's writing to these churches that often would say, well, you know, we just need to kind of maybe take it a little slower, or let's temper this down, and let's not be so extreme, and let's wait it out, and let's see what happens. And he says, no, it's, you're, you're claiming a faith, but you need a deeper faith. You can't stay on the, you need to, you need to be more extreme 
the right kind of extreme. John and Jesus agree with that. Here's how John says it. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Here's what John says. He categorizes all sin under those three things. The desires of the flesh, the things, our passions that we just want to do, our appetites that we want to pursue. The desires of the eyes, that's coveting. We see things, we want things. That's materialism and and a pursuit and a seeking of comfort. And the pride of life, which is wanting to be our own God, wanting to be our own king, arrogance, self-righteousness. So all, he says, man, all that's in the world, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And if you love the things in the world, what's the problem? The love of the Father's not in you. You need to know God's love for you. You need to love God. And then here's how Jesus says it. He's talking to the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders, and, and he says to them, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So here's here's what Jesus says, that there's people that that stand up. Here he's talking to religious people. There's people that live these lives and they stand up and they honor God with their lips. They speak about God. They say God is great. They say God is awesome. They say we love God. We say God is holy. God is that we honor God with our lips. And yet, he says, their heart is far from me. So the words they say are not really what's in their heart. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. That the profession of belief is useless, even dangerous, if our hearts are far from him. So here's what all of that together, Martin Luther King and John and Jesus, what they all say the solution is, is not retreat, backpedal, be a little more moderate, be a little more easygoing, be a little more lighthearted. They say, no, you need something, you need to be more extreme, MLK says, John says, you need something to happen. There needs to be a love change in you. Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, says, your heart is far from God. Something deeper needs to happen in your heart. Something actually has to take place in your heart. You need religion, you need faith to get deep into your soul, not less in your soul. Fanaticism of the kind we see in the video or the Crusades or hypocrisy, does not come from people not know, uh, loving Jesus too much. It doesn't come from people that are too excited about their faith. It comes from people that have not actually had their heart be changed by the grace of God deep enough, powerful enough. Because if it did, it would lead to something much different. And the only way that that happens is through the gospel. It happens that as we see Jesus, what John said earlier, that as we come to see him and come to know him, as we see that Jesus, though we're hypocrites, came towards us. I mean, here's the amazing thing. Jesus identifies the problem as our heart is far from him. But you know what? 
even when our heart was far from him, he brought his heart near towards us. Do you know, I mean, that's the gospel. The gospel is that though our hearts are far from God, that though we live as hypocrites and love the world and pursue our own selfishness and even use his name for those things, that even though our hearts are far from him, he brings his heart near towards us. That's what we remember when we take communion. That he had his blood shed and his body broken, not for people whose hearts were close towards him, but for people whose hearts were far from him. And yet he said, my heart's coming near towards you, though. Even though your heart is far from me, my heart is close to you. And that's, that's the love and the grace and the pursuit that Jesus gives to us. And so if you're a Christian, when you, when you take communion, I want you to remember that sweet truth. That no matter where you are right now, God brings his heart close towards you. And if you see that, and if you know that, and if you taste that, that's what begins to draw your heart towards him. That's what then eliminates hypocrisy and selfishness. And is You see his heart coming close to you, and your heart then moves towards him. That's what it means to be a Christian. And when you take communion, think about that, remember that, and then we'll sing songs to celebrate that and rejoice in that. And we give tithes and offerings to say, yes, God has brought his heart close towards us and we bring our hearts close towards him. In giving, just as he gave to us, we give. If you're not a Christian, please don't give. I want you to experience God's heart coming near towards you. But for those of us that are Christians, we give because his heart has come near towards us and we celebrate that. Let me pray for us and we will end in singing. God, thank you. Thank you that you drew your heart near towards us. And not just in some mushy way of, of sending us a Valentine's card, but, but you drew your heart near towards us in sending us your son. You drew your heart so near towards us that you gave your life, that you went to the cross to die in our place for our sins. You went to the cross since our hearts were far from you. You went to the cross since we live hypocritically. But you lived a life with your heart drawn towards God and drawn towards us. And even now you draw us in. And I thank you for that. Thank you that you never let us go. That you pursue us endlessly. Help us to remember those things as we take communion. And even as we sing songs, let those truths ring deeper in our heart tonight. In your name we pray. Amen.